0: Okay, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. And real quickly, let me just give a brief summary of some of the things that I said. Out of Ephesians chapter 2, I started sharing from verse 8 about, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I've been teaching about the relationship between grace and faith. You aren't saved by grace alone. You aren't saved by faith alone. And many people will emphasize one or the other, but seldom do you hear these things combined. And I believe that this is why individuals struggle so much. I believe that this is a major division in the body of Christ. We've got people that just talk about it's just totally up to God. It's what God chooses. It's the grace of God. We have nothing to do with it. God is sovereign. And Thursday night I talked about an abuse of that uh, teaching to where people just believe that God controls everything that happens and that'll totally, totally make you passive. There is zero point in resisting the devil if you believe that God just sovereignly controls everything. So I countered all of that and showed that that's wrong. But then on uh, yesterday morning, I shared that talking about just faith and this attitude that we move God and that we are pressuring God and making God move by the things that we do, and this concept that I do this, this, and this, and then God responds to me, that that is totally wrong too. I don't believe that that's true faith at all. That's just legalism, that's works, and that's wrong too. Either one of those extremes will kill you. And so last night we talked about combining them, how that faith just reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided for us by grace. And last night I used Ephesians chapter 1 to show that God has already supplied everything. We don't have to ask, beg, plead with God. He's already supplied it. It's just a matter of us receiving. So today I want to illustrate that from Hebrews chapter 4. Let me make one addition. I had a woman come up to me last night, a pastor's wife, and she brought up a real good point. And she says, what about the scriptures? Ask and you shall receive. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desired of him. And, you know, it's not wrong to ask. And yet I was talking last night about how that God's already provided everything. So technically you don't have to ask for it. You just believe and receive and take this position to where you command and release the power of God. So what's the harmony between that? I believe it's the attitude that you ask in. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But like in uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer... Where the Lord, you know, said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What that is, that's a petition for God to meet your daily needs. But it's not, would you please give us this day our daily bread, question mark, wondering will. It's more of a demand. Give us this day our daily bread. It's similar to a child when they go into their mother and they said, can I have something to eat? You know, what would you think if you were over at my house and when my kids were little, if one of the kids came in and fell on their knees and put their hands together and said, Oh, Father, I know I don't deserve it, but could you please give me a piece of bread? Could I please have a morsel of food? I know that I'm ungodly. I know I don't deserve it. But if they started begging me like that, I guarantee you, you would think something is wrong in this home. Now, a kid, if they're trained properly, they don't come in and just say, give me something to eat. That's wrong, too. They might come in and they say, could I please have something to eat? They're asking a question, but there's really no question involved. They know that you love them. They know that you're going to supply. And so it's really placing a demand. It's just doing it in a polite kind way. I'm not saying that we don't ever say, God, I you know, need Uh, you to supply something and so you don't acknowledge your need and you request things but it's not a begging request it's not a request that has a question mark at the end where you doubt that god is going to do it it's more just a polite way of coming in and saying father i know that you've already provided all of my needs and so i'm ready to receive it can i have it now if you approach god like that i'm not against you petitioning god But I'm just saying that the way that it's been done where we throw a petition out but you don't know if God's going to answer it or not and you feel you have to grovel in the dirt and acknowledge all these things is a religious concept that I believe is absolutely contrary to what the Scriptures teach. You know, if I was to give somebody the keys to my car, if I was to tell you that after this meeting, you know, as soon as this meeting's over, I'll give you the keys to my car and you can use it to go do whatever you want to do. If I gave you that promise and then after this meeting you come up to me and said, can I have the keys to your car? You could do that in a couple of different ways. You could be thinking, you know what Andrew really let me have his car? I don't believe that. I'm not sure that that's true. So you come up and you say, can I have the keys to your car? Like, is this really true? Would you really do this? You know, that's unbelief. Or you could come up and say, can I have the keys to your car? You believe me totally, and all that is is just saying, I'm ready. You said it, here I am requesting it now. Can I have the keys to your car? You can say the exact same words. One of them could be placing a demand, trusting that what I said is true. The other one could be a total statement of unbelief. And that's what I was countering was the unbelief, or the way that people today are saying, Lord, if it be your will, please touch me, please move in my life. No, it is God's will. He's already supplied everything. And so instead of coming and begging, instead of approaching the Lord as a beggar, we need to be believers that trust his promises and come in and just take advantage of what he's already provided for us. Amen? Well, that is a powerful, powerful truth. Here in Hebrews chapter 4, Let's read some of these verses. I wish I had time to put all of this in context. We're going to depend heavily on what he said in chapter 3, but I'll try and just summarize this. He was talking about the Jews when they came out of the land of Egypt and all of the hardships that they went through. The last verse... Of Hebrews chapter 3 says, So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. And I made this point yesterday morning. Anybody who believes that God's will just automatically comes to pass has to turn your brain off when you read the Bible. Because when the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, it wasn't God's will for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And there's a bunch of places that say that. But it was because of their unbelief that all of these things happened. God's will did not automatically come to pass because we have to cooperate with it to see what God wills come to pass. And this is what this is talking about. They didn't enter into the promised land. That generation that came out died in the wilderness and never did see God's will for them come to pass because of their unbelief is what this says. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Again, those who say that God sovereignly does everything and nothing happens but what it's God's will, this verse is useless if you believe that. This is saying, man, you need to be careful, you need to be cautious, you need to be aware, you need to be diligent because you could miss what God's will for you is. This, that, that would be a useless statement if God just automatically does everything and nothing happens but what it's God's will. Everybody see that? I know I've already taught on that, but that can't be said enough because this is the prevalent doctrine of our church today is that God is just responsible, God controls everything. This is saying just the opposite. You need to be cautious. You need to fear lest you miss out on something that God has provided for you. In verse 2 it says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them... But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. This is exactly what I've been talking about. God by grace had provided a plan for them. He promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that he would bring his children, his descendants out of the land of Egypt and bring them into a land and and give them the entire nation of, of Canaan and all of those nations right there. God promised that 430 years before it came to pass. And so by grace, He had already promised. He had already made the provision. And He finally brought the people out. But because they didn't put faith in what God's purpose and plan for them was, that generation never did see this come to pass. They died in the wilderness. They came out of the land of Egypt, but they died in this wilderness because of their unbelief. You've got to put faith with what God wants you to do. You've got to obey God. You've got to believe God. And that's what this is saying. And then in verse 3 it says, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath. And this goes back and begins to quote from Psalms chapter 95. And this was also quoted in chapter 3. Again, if I had time to put this in context, it would make more sense if you took the whole thing in context but in the uh, third chapter he quoted from Psalms 95 and he says today as it is written if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts as it was in the provocation when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works 40 years wherefore i was grieved with that generation and said they they are a group of people that always err in their heart and they will not enter into my rest all of those things were quoted in the third chapter. So now here he is once again making reference back to this scripture that the uh, that David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about in verse three. He says, "If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world." Now this is linking this rest that Psalms ninety-five spoke about to the Sabbath rest that God took in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. After he created the heavens and the earth, it says he rested from all of his works. And it's it's making this linkage right here in this third verse. In verse 4 he says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all of his works. That's Genesis chapter 2 verse 2. And in this place again, Psalms chapter 95 verse 11, if they shall enter into my rest. And so in verse 6 he says, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limited a certain day, saying in David, today after so long a time as it is written, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now this is old English and it's really wordy, but here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that don't be like the Jews who miss out on something that God provided. And he quotes this scripture where David said that there remains a rest to the people of God. And he goes back and he says this is the same thing that God talked about in Genesis chapter 2 when he rested on the seventh day from all of his labors. And then it says, and this wasn't fulfilled, this rest, this special relationship wasn't fulfilled when the Jews occupied the land of Canaan because 400 years after the Jews were occupying Canaan, David came along in Psalms 95 and says, there remains a rest to the people of God. So he's saying that this this spiritual rest, this... Um, this uh, analogy that he's using here wasn't fulfilled when the Jews occupied the land because here's David 400 years later saying there is still a rest for the people of God. That's the point that he's making. And in the next verse, it says uh, in verse 8, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? This word Jesus is just the Greek word for Joshua. Joshua And Jesus are the same word in different languages. This isn't talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. This is saying that if Joshua, the one who led the children of Israel into the promised land, would have fulfilled this promise about there being a rest of the people of God, then David wouldn't have, hundreds of years later, spoken about this rest. Everybody getting this? I know I'm making you think. Most people don't like to come to a meeting like this and think. You just want to be entertained. You want somebody to scream and shout and run and spit and do something. And man, I feel the anointing. But you know, if you'd use your brain for something besides a hat rack, you could get some wonderful revelation out of this. Amen. So basically, this is what he's saying. He's saying that this rest that these verses were promising were not fulfilled when the Jews occupied the land of Canaan that there is a rest reserved for the people of God that applies to us today, New Testament believers. That's the point that he's making. So he says in verse 8 again, If Jesus, or Joshua, had given them rest, then would he, David, not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his, referring back again to the creation when God rested on the seventh day. So what I want to do today is to take what the scripture here talks about the rest of God, relate it to the Sabbath day, and show you what the Sabbath was supposed to be a picture and type of. Before I uh, explain all of that, let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and look at this verse. There's only two times in all of Scripture that a reason for the Sabbath was given. One of those is an Old Testament Scripture that says that God gave the Sabbath so that you and the beast and your servants can rest. So it was for you to rest. That's one time. Here is the second time that the Sabbath is mentioned and explained as to why God gave it. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16. It says let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holiday. Or a holy day excuse me or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Which are a figure or a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. Verse 17 says that all of these things there was five things listed were a shadow of something that was to come. You know, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the reality. All of the blood sacrifices and all of the rituals that they went through, they were all symbolic of something yet to come. And symbolism and shadows and types and pictures are very important if you don't have the real thing in front of you. Like, say, for instance, if you had never seen me, then if somebody drew a picture of me you know what, that could give you an idea what I look like if you had never seen me. But if I'm standing in front of you, why would you look at my picture? You know, a picture is of use if the person isn't there. It's like if this was a corner of a building right here, and if I was standing over here, and if you were around the corner of the building... And if you couldn't see me, but if you could see my shadow, did you know my shadow would give you a lot of information about me? It would let you know whether I'm standing still, whether I'm moving towards you, whether I'm moving away from you. It could tell you whether I'm jumping up and down. You could get some kind of an idea of my shadow if I was real fat or if I was skinny or things like that. A shadow will give you information if you can't see the person. But if I walked around the corner of the building and if I was in full view... What would you think if a person says, oh, and they fell down and tried to hug my shadow or shake hands with my shadow? You know, if you can't see me, a shadow may be the next best thing, but if I'm in plain view, why would you shake hands with my shadow if I'm here? And let me just make a ra- radical statement. The Bible here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, says that five things, one of those things was the Sabbath Sabbath was a shadow of things to come, but not the very image of those things. It was just a shadow. And yet we have New Testament believers today who are trying to observe the Sabbath. We have entire denominations built around the observance of the Sabbath. It is enforced. They preach that you're a Sabbath breaker if you work on the Sabbath, if you do certain things... And yet they have missed the whole symbolism of the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't picturing a day. It was observed in the Old Testament, but it is now a New Testament reality, and that's what Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about. It's talking about what the Sabbath was a picture of. It was a picture of a rest, a relationship with God where you were trusting and relying on the finished work of Christ and not on your own effort and on your own things. And to prove that, he goes back in Hebrews chapter 4 and begins to talk about the Sabbath that the Lord instituted. It says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 that on the seventh day the Lord rested from all of the work which he had created and made. And he blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And uh, I forget the exact wording. There it is right there. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. And he blessed that seventh day, and so what happened on creation it 's if you 'll think with me just for a moment here, this could really help you to understand the relationship that we now have with God. When the Lord created the heavens and the earth, there was an order to the way he created things he didn 't create man on the first day of creation; man was the crown jewel of all creation, and there's scriptures that verify that, contrary to tree huggers today and people who exalt snails and certain types of fish and frogs and they build multi-million dollar tunnels so that they can go on the other side of the road and yet they'll kill a baby. Contrary to those type of people who have their priorities all out of whack, did you know that God created man as the crowning jewel of His creation? Well, why didn't He create man first? Because things weren't ready for Him. You know, if God would have created man on the first day of creation, man would have had to have tread water for four days before there was land to stand on. And then if he, once the land was there, God said, let there be trees, let there be fruit bearing trees, let there be all of this stuff. God, man would have had to have been dodging all of the trees as they popped up. They didn't come from plants And grow gradually, contrary to those of you who bought into evolution. God created everything full grown. It didn't take millions and billions of years. And I haven't got time to discuss that with you, but it doesn't need discussion. Uh, God created these things. It wasn't ready for man. So the Lord waited until the entire creation was made. The fruit trees were created full grown. They already had fruit on them. They didn't have to wait seven years for those trees to begin to start producing fruit. God created a perfect world where there was land for the man to stand on, where there was food for the man to eat. The temperature was just right. The air was just right. Everything was perfect. God made everything perfect. He created the animals for man's pleasure and did everything. And at the very end of his creation, you know, according to the Hebrews, they uh, and you can see this in Genesis chapter 1, it says, The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. Hebrews count time from sundown one day until sundown the next day. It's not from 12 o'clock midnight until the next 12 o'clock midnight. They count it from evening to evening. So the Lord, the very first day, it started at uh, sundown and it went to the next day. That was the first day. And when it says that on the sixth day, God created man... He started about evening on what we would call, would have called the fifth day, and He created, and then at sundown, right before sundown was the end of that sixth day, He created man at the very end of all of His creation. He had already created all of the food, everything perfect for Him, and then immediately God rested and entered into the seventh day. So man was created right before this Sabbath, And man entered into God's Sabbath where everything was provided. Now here's the comparison between you and us. See, God didn't create man on the first day of creation where he had to tread water or where he had to wait days before God created food for him to eat. God had anticipated every need, not only of Adam and Eve, but of the entire human race. Did you know everything we're doing today... The oil that we're pulling out of the ground, God anticipated that and put that there. Did you know, There is no energy shortage. Don't get me even started on all of this stuff, but just in the same way that we discovered oil, there's other things. God's created everything that we need. If there was 10 times as many people on this planet, God has made this planet to be able to sustain us. He's anticipated everything. God isn't creating things today. God isn't making new trees. New cows, new horses, new people. When God created them, if you were to turn over to Genesis and read this, it's real significant the way he said. He said, let the earth bring forth fruit, fruit trees, whose seed is in itself. He didn't just say, let there be trees, let there be fruit. See, if he had have said that and didn't create a way for those things to reproduce, procreate, then the Lord would have to create new trees every time an old tree died to maintain the balance. He would have to, you know, he'd have to get up and say, let there be a million new cows today. And he'd have to create new cows. But when he created the animals, he says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He gave animals, people, trees, everything the ability to reproduce so that when God finished the creation and said, behold, it's good. And then it says he rested That isn't just symbolic. I mean, God literally has not created anything since the original creation. The creation is self-perpetuating. It creates and, and perpetuates everything. God created it this way so that when He rested, He literally quit. It's over. But it doesn't mean that He rested in the sense that He was pooped. That he was tired, I mean like God had just created the universe and all the stars and the planets. And I mean one more moon and God would pass out. He was worn out. He, he, he didn't have it in him to create another cow, another horse. He was just totally worn out. No, it isn't that kind of a rest. It's like an artist paints a picture and he looks at it and everything is perfect. He, if he adds one more brush stroke to it, he's going to ruin the thing. And so he just puts his paintbrush down and rests From his work, not because he's worn out holding that paintbrush up, but because it's complete. It's done. It's finished. It's like, you know, a a lawyer says, I rest my case. That doesn't mean that the lawyer's worn out, that he can't say one more word. It just means that he's finished. He's, you know, through. I rest my case. It's that way. God rested not because he was worn out. The Bible says over in Isaiah chapter 40 that haven't you heard that the Lord doesn't get weary? He doesn't grow weary like, man, God's not tired. God wasn't worn out. He rested because everything was so perfect. He didn't, When man came and said, Lord, I'm hungry, God didn't have to say, oh, I didn't think of that. Here, let me create a tree for you to eat something. Let me do this. The Lord didn't respond to man's need and say, oh, here, let me create something for you. Let me do this. No, he had anticipated every need And he rested, and a man, all he had to do, he didn't have to ask God for something. He just had to reach out and take what God had already created and say thank you. And see, this is what the rest was all about. This is what the Sabbath was all about. This is what the Old Testament Sabbath pictured. He told his people to take one day a week off while everybody else is working their fingers to the bone. Did you know in the natural that doesn't make sense? How can I prosper as much as other people who work seven days a week if I only work six days a week? Well, you couldn't if it's just you and your effort. But if it's God blessing you, even though you're working, even though you plant a seed in the ground, God is going to bless it. If God is your source, then trusting God and obeying God and taking one out of seven days off is actually going to make you prosper more than the people who only rely on their own ability. And so because there was faith involved, the Jews prospered more than the other nations around them, even though they took one day out of seven off. And then those scriptures we used during the offering, Leviticus chapter 25, they took one year out of seven off, and yet God blessed them just like clockwork with three times a normal harvest. Because you know what? They were resting in God. They were trusting in God. That's what the Sabbath was a picture of. It never was about observing a certain day. It was just a way of God getting this truth across to people that I'm your source. Trust me. The Lord hates this type of attitude where people only serve God one day a week or something. This what this was symbolic of is that I'm your source. Trust me for everything. That's what the Sabbath was picturing, and people today who are sitting there and enforcing a day, and you know, like I was raised in a semi-legalistic home. It wasn't as bad as some people, but we didn't mow the grass on Sunday. You couldn't uh, wash dishes on Sunday. You couldn't do housework on Sunday. That was the Sabbath, which in the first place, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. And so some people who've become aware of that think, well, then we need to be a Seventh-day Adventist and we need to observe the Sabbath on Saturday. They're missing the point. The reason the church started meeting on Sunday was because that was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead and they had a revelation that we were redeemed from the Old Testament types and shadows. Now we were living in the reality of trusting Jesus and they made a clean break between the Old Testament law and the New Testament. And yet many New Testament Christians today still have a Sabbath-keeping mentality. They feel guilty if they go out and do certain things on the Sabbath. Some people keep the Sabbath on Saturday and enforce it and get real mean. I used not to go through a toll booth on Sunday. I'd drive 40 minutes out of the way so I wouldn't pay a person to work on Sunday. There was years, the very first revival meeting that I ever held, I held a revival meeting and on Sunday morning they were going to take me out to eat and I said, no way am I going to go out to eat and help somebody work on the Sabbath and help them be a Sabbath breaker. And so they had a whole group of people that were there to take me out, and I, they went by themselves, and I didn't go. Some of you think, well, that's a little legalistic. Well, if you're going to believe it, believe it. I mean, if you want to go back and observe the Old Testament Sabbath, well, then it would be more appropriate to do like the Pharisees did. They counted the number of steps that you could walk on a Sabbath day. Did you know the essence, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that John the Baptist was raised by? In their writings, it was considered work to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day. You could not have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day. It was against their law. If you're going to believe it, believe it. For you to just be partially under it and observe it a little bit, it's hypocritical. Either we're under the Sabbath or we aren't under the Sabbath. The Sabbath was only a picture of trusting God where you cease from your own labors and you say, God, I believe that you're my source and I am not going to depend on just my efforts alone. I'm going to depend upon you. And see, this is what it pictured. And now in the new covenant, just as the same as God created everything, He doesn't have to create food for you to eat He doesn't have to create air for you to breathe. He's created the earth, the trees and stuff. Purify the air so that there is a perpetual uh, supply of oxygen. God doesn't have to create anything for us. He's already anticipated all of our needs and He's already made everything and now we have entered into His rest. We are benefiting from all of the things that God created, anticipating the needs of the entire human race. You know, this is one reason that I am a little put out with all of the green type of stuff where they say that we're destroying the earth because it's really a slap in the face of God to think that man could overwhelm and overtax and destroy this earth that God created. You can go back and, you know, Mount St. Helens, they said it's going to take 10,000 years for that to regenerate. Within three years, it had done what they anticipated 10,000 years to do. The earth has the ability to regenerate To cleanse itself. You can take a polluted stream and if you quit polluting it, the thing will uh, purify itself in a short period of time. I tell you, this whole thing is an ungodly, secular attitude to where man has been exalted to the position of God and God has been eliminated or decreased to the point that they don't realize that God anticipated everything we could ever do. This earth isn't going to be destroyed by us. God is going to destroy it with a fervent heat. And it's not, we aren't going to destroy ourselves anyway. I'll throw that in for free. But see, God anticipated everything, made all of these things, and we've just entered into His rest. We are benefiting from what God created thousands of years ago, and it's already complete, and all we're doing is reaching out and appropriating what God has already provided. That's what the Sabbath was a picture of. And in the New Testament... We now have the reality of the Sabbath to where we are resting and trusting in Him. And that's what the Sabbath was picturing. We now have a relationship to where before you ever needed healing, God had already healed you by His stripes. You were healed, 1 Peter 2:24. You don't have to ask God to heal you. You don't have to do something and then in response to you, God heals you. No, healing is already provided. And all you have to do is just reach out and take it and say, thank you. You don't have to ask God to bless you. The Lord's commanded the blessing upon you in everything that you do before you were ever born, before you ever had your need. The blessing of God is already on you and you don't have to beg God for supply. You just rest in Him and trust it. Father, I know you've already met my needs. That's what the Sabbath was a picture of. This is the rest that Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about. where we just rest and there are very few christians today who i believe are resting in what jesus has already provided but instead they have the mindset that oh god i've got this problem i need you to do something and they are waiting on god to create their need to meet their need to do something to move not understanding that god anticipated your needs you aren't resting in the lord and that's what all of this is about over in Hebrews chapter 4 if you'll go back there Hebrews chapter 4 after he said all of these things in verse 10 for he that is entered into his rest hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his in other words you've ceased trying to make god do something you've ceased trying to get god to bless you you've ceased trying to earn god's favor and now you are just resting in the fact that, Father, through Jesus, you've already supplied everything. In the same way that God created everything, and He doesn't create new people, new uh, animals, new trees today, those are all a result of His original creation. The Lord made a new creation, and that's us. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, Second Corinthians 5:17. Old things have passed away, All things have become new. We now have a new creation, and in this new creation, when you need to be healed, God doesn't have to heal you. It was already in the new creation. When you need to be prospered, God doesn't have to prosper you. He's already commanded blessing and prosperity. He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, in the new creation through Jesus, everything is already done, and the key to the Christian life is learning how to rest, Trust that, Father, it's done. My bank book says I'm broke and I have a desire to start bawling and squalling and crying and praying and fasting and doing something to make you move. But you know what? I'm going to rest and trust what the Bible says that you've already supplied all of my needs. You've already blessed me. You've commanded your blessing upon me. I am blessed above all people. And I guarantee you the Christian life is learning how to rest instead of how to work and do something to make God move. That's what he's talking about. If you have entered into his rest, then you have ceased from your own efforts. It's no longer you doing something to make God move. It's you learning how to trust and rely on the fact that God has already done it. And then look at this next verse. In verse 11 it says, Let us therefore... Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now this sounds like a contradiction of terms, an oxymoron. How do you labor to rest? Well, if you see rest as just vegging out and going to sleep and doing nothing, you don't labor to rest. But if you see rest as ceasing from your own works, ceasing from thinking that you have to earn God's favor. You have to do something to motivate God and to get God to love you and to answer your prayers. And God, don't you love this person? I've been praying for them for 20 years. Oh, God, do something. See, that's not resting. You think that you are the one that is motivating God. And if it wasn't for your intercession, God had just let people go to hell because He doesn't care. It's your great intercession that's moving God. That's trusting in your own effort. You aren't resting in God. So, but if you see rest as just trusting, relying on, God, you love this person more than I could ever love this person. You've already provided salvation for them, so I know it's your will. And so, Father, I just thank you that your will is coming to pass. And here am I. Use me. If you can open up a door for me to share with this person, well, then I'll, I'll receive it. That's the way you pray for lost people instead of pleading with God as if it's up to Him whether or not they get saved. God is not the one that determines who gets saved. He's made the provision. He's provided it for everybody, but people have a free choice. And so you have to become a channel for God to flow through. But see, when you understand rest that way, it takes effort. You have to labor to rest. It takes effort for you when, when the banker is calling you, when your checkbook is in the red when your husband or wife should be saying, you got to do something, do something. It takes labor to sit there and say, you know what, my faith is in God. I'm doing what God has told me to do. I trust God and I am not going to panic. I will not get out of rest. I am not going to get into fear. It takes labor for you when the doctor says you're going to die. For you to sit there and say, that's not what God's Word says. He says that by His stripes I was healed. I was healed. I'm not going to be healed. I was already healed. He's already supplied it. And I am not going to panic. I will not get into fear. It takes effort for you to rest like that. And see, this is why we study the Word. We don't study the Word to get God to heal us. We study the Word to find out that God has already healed us and to calm our fears and to anchor our faith so that, Father, I'm operating on this knowledge that you've given me and I'm not moving off of it. I tell you what, it takes effort. You know, in the area of finances, um, you know, I'm still growing and learning and I haven't got this licked by any means. But I tell you, I'm seeing God's supply in a way that I've never seen. In my life, I mean, we have to have over $1.3 million a month just to break even, and we give everything away. You know what? If you were to think about that and take the responsibility on yourself of producing this money, it could affect your sleep. <laughs> I have to have something like $40,000 every 24 hour period that goes by. That means that since we've been here, that's what? At least 120000 maybe $150,000 that I've had to have. and You know what? It's just beyond my ability. And I have to labor to rest. I have to keep my attention focused on God, saying, God, this is what you called me to do. You're the one that told me to do this, and you're responsible. If you told me to do it, then it's your responsibility. It's not mine. Actually, did you know that the bigger the financial needs of the ministry get, the easier it is for me to rest. Now, some of you might think, well, no, it's the opposite, but it's really, it's easier because back when we were small, I remember we went through a really bad financial time and I had a dream one night, and in this dream, I just quit the ministry and went and joined the Air Force. And I was going to pay off all of my debts that I'd incurred in ministry. And I I could pay it off. It might take years, but I'd eventually pay it off. And I'm one of these that they call lucid dreamers. When I dream, it's in color. It's real. It's hard for me to tell whether it's real or a dream. I mean, my dreams are vivid, real to me. And I mean, I woke up. I was laying in bed saying, oh, it was just a dream. Thank you, Jesus. And I didn't join the Air Force I was thinking these things to myself and Jamie leans over and she said, it wasn't so bad that you had to go join the Air Force. <laughs> Man, my heart started pounding. I thought, oh God, it wasn't a dream. <laughs> Turned out I was talking in my sleep and she heard the whole thing. That wasn't nice. <laughs> but see, back when our ministry was small and we had $20,000 in debt this, I could pay that off if I have to. But you know what? If... I can't pay off millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in debtedness. And so actually it's easier for me to rest now because, you know what, it's just, I'm in way over my head. It's like, (laughs) God, if you don't come through, I've had it. And so, man, it's been years since I've worried about finances. It's not a big deal because it's just way beyond my ability. I have to depend upon God. But, you know, this is an illustration that there is tendencies to sit there and to get into the... All right, what do I have to do? God, I'm going to do something. And you start praying or fasting or doing something to make God come through. Every time you do that, you've stepped out of faith in what God has already done and you've moved into legalism, into works. You're going to do something to make yourself worthy. You're going to do something to where God has to come through. And the moment you've done that, you're out of grace and faith. You're into legalism. And I guarantee you the only thing that is truly offensive to God is not your sin, but it's your self-righteousness, your self-dependence to where you no longer need a Savior, but you're going to do something, and you're going to go through yourself instead of through Jesus. That is the most offensive thing that you could possibly do. Homosexuality is an abomination, I'm not minimizing it at all, but in comparison to self-righteousness, to where you think that God has to do something through you and your effort and not through Jesus. That makes the sin of homosexuality seem like nothing in comparison. Because you are, in a sense, saying Jesus isn't enough. I've got to do something to motivate God. God's got to move in my life because of what I've done. I tell you, this is a tremendous truth that I've been sharing this week about that God has already provided everything. The Sabbath illustrated it in the same way He created everything for man and all man had to do was just reach out and receive. Now in the new creation, God has provided everything for you. It's just a matter of reach out and appropriate by faith what God has already provided by grace. And it's going to take some effort. You're going to have to study the Word, not to make God impressed with your Bible study and move because you've been holy in doing this. You need to study the Word to renew your mind. You aren't going to hear very many people say what I'm saying. You aren't going to get this watching as the stomach turns on the television. You're going to have to get into the Word of God. You're going to have to come to meetings. You're going to have to turn off the television and start studying the Word. You're going to have to spend time in the presence of God. It's going to take effort. You're going to have to labor to rest. The hardest thing you'll ever do is when the pressure is on and the devil's screaming, do something, do something, trying to get you into self-effort. Hardest thing you'll ever do is stand there and say, my faith is in God and if God doesn't come through, I'm dead. That's it. It takes effort to rest. It takes a lot of faith to rest. But boy, that is a powerful, powerful truth. And God has already provided everything. You just need to rest in it. And sometimes, you know, there's been times that the way I've rested is I start praising God for what His Word says He's done, not what I see, not what I feel. But I just get into praise. And I mean, when I start in praise, I don't feel like praising God. I feel like crying. I feel like running. I feel like saying, God, it didn't work But I take a step of faith and I start praising Him. Father, I thank You that I am healed. I thank You that I am blessed. I thank You that I am what You told me to be. And I just start uh, praising Him and resting in Him. And I may start in the flesh. I may not really be feeling it. But I'll do it because I know it's the right thing to do. And if I'll keep doing it, you know, after a while, I get to listening to myself. I get to saying, man, that's pretty good. I do believe that I am healed. I do believe that God has supplied my needs. I do believe that God has already done this. And after a while, true faith begins to rise up in my heart. And now I'm not doing it anymore just out of, uh, you know, because I know it's the right thing to do. I do it because I really believe it. And man, the moment I get over into faith, to where that faith is mixed with God's grace, boom, there's the power of God and we see the things of God come to pass. It's going to take effort. You can't just float downstream with circumstances, with the crowd. You're going to have to swim against the current. You're going to have to go against your feelings, against what circumstances say. It takes effort. But I tell you, the points that I've been making are all true. God has already anticipated everything. Everything that you need is already done. You don't need to badger God, ask God, plead with God. God has anticipated every need you could ever have. He's already supplied it. It's there. Now, you just got to rest. You got to get into a position where you believe and not just say you believe, but it is an active thing on the inside of you. But boy, it takes effort to reach there. But the first step is you got to know the truth that God's already supplied it. Amen. And that's what I've been sharing with you. I believe this is going to help you. Praise God. You know, if anybody here doesn't know Jesus today, the very first step is...